God of life, by the power of your spirit, come to us now. Plow our hearts with your living word until we are broken, become fertile with your love. For we long to bear fruit in a world that is wasting. We pray in the name of Jesus, whose charge we bear. Amen. All right. So our first reading comes from Genesis 25, uh, verses 19 through 34. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was four years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Padan Aram, sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red all his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I am about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold him his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God.
Our second reading for this morning comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to abolish things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. In contrast, God is why you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. These words are trustworthy and true. Thanks be to God. I wonder how many of you know what it feels like to be chosen last. It's been a while since gym class, so I can't remember with 100% certainty that I was actually chosen last. But if I wasn't, I was at least in the, the final two. Not a great feeling. I used to love watching The Wonder Years, the original version with Fred Savage. The new one's good too, but that original one, gym class plays a big role on that show. And Kevin's best friend, Paul, is consistently chosen last because Paul is nerdy and uncoordinated and nobody wants him on their team. So Kevin musters up his courage and goes to Coach Cutlip and says, Coach, I think there's a fairer way that we can choose teams. And the coach thinks about it, and of course the next day he makes Kevin a captain to choose. So Kevin nervously chooses his friend Paul first, and the whole class laughs. See, it hurts to be overlooked, and it can hurt to be chosen. And all of this is painful amongst peers, but how much worse when it takes place within families. Well, today we meet Jacob, who is perhaps my favorite character in all of Scripture, and boy, is he a character. As a younger brother myself, I've always admired Jacob. Some of you know my older brother. He was always stronger, more athletic, and managed to get far better grades than I ever did. Felt like I could never beat him at anything. And Jacob is the archetype of the trickster. Tricksters show up in literature across the world, and they exercise, they give people... <laughs> who don't have power in traditional means, it allows them to exercise agency. If you can't defeat your opponent through muscle, perhaps you can outwit them. And so Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, use power in precisely this way to dupe both father and son. Jacob is not like his father, Isaac. He's much more like his grandfather, Abraham, who lives a long and complicated story, and we heard this morning it's complicated even before he was born. Rebecca, like Sarah before, does not conceive without divine intervention. And even though Genesis just pauses over this, it says, 
that Isaac prayed for Rebekah and she conceived, yet it took 20 years for that to take place. 20 years from their marriage until Jacob and Esau's birth. And so Isaac and Rebekah learned just like Abraham and Sarah that God's promises often take far longer to be fulfilled than we'd like. Can anyone here relate to that? And so the Lord, upon hearing Isaac's prayer, enables Rebekah to conceive, but it is not an easy pregnancy. Her twins are fighting in the womb, and she says, if this is how it's going to be, I can't do this. As I read that this week, I thought, how many pregnant women have said to themselves, I didn't sign up for this. Pregnancy is often complicated, exciting and terrifying, hopeful and scary all at the same time. And Rebecca isn't afraid to express her anguish. She doesn't pretend that everything's fine when it's not. And so she inquires of Yahweh. She takes her case before the Lord, and the Lord responds directly to her. Of all of the matriarchs in Genesis, Rebecca is by far the most active agent in her own story. Last week we saw that she gave consent to her marriage to Isaac. She actually did it twice. I only pointed it out once, but she does it twice. And now after 20 years of waiting, Rebecca isn't sure she wants to be pregnant if it's going to be this painful. She's once again expressing agency over her body and her life. May all women everywhere be empowered to do the same. And God responds to her cry with a cryptic poem that reveals that this in utero struggle will follow these boys throughout their lives. And God says, The older shall serve the younger. And that may seem like an offhand comment to us, but in the world, from which the Bible emerges, this is scandalous. So Jacob comes into the world trying to get ahead of his older brother. And he's going to spend the better part of his life trying to do the same. The name Jacob means supplanter or heel. I like heel. Any pro wrestling fans out there? The heel is the the bad guy character who breaks all the rules. And I don't know if we can actually characterize Jacob as a bad guy, but we sure can't characterize him as a good one either. A conflict and struggle are baked into his life. Uh, Anyone who has siblings knows that this is not an uncommon experience. My mother used to enjoy punishing Uh, my older sister and I, by forcing us to sit on the couch and hug for two minutes. It was both memorable and effective. It's hard to stay mad at someone that you are hugging. So whether it's with your parents or your siblings, teachers or friends, neighbors or coworkers, conflict and struggle are part of life. It's baked in. And how we deal with conflict shapes the people that we become. You might be one who's conflict avoidant. Maybe you're a fighter. 
Maybe you're one of those slow burn people who stays cool the whole time and then something snaps and boy, look out. Whatever your strategy, conflict is a part of life and how we deal with it shapes the character that we become. And so the Lord tells Rebecca that these boys are destined to be divided and the older shall serve the younger. In other words, their life will not merely be one of conflict, but also scandal. What do I mean by that? Well, you might be familiar with the idea in the ancient Near East that the older son inherited a double portion of the father's land and wealth. It doesn't matter if a father loves one son more than another. It is the oldest son who is to get the double portion of his father's estate. Deuteronomy 21 actually goes out of its way to say, hey, even if there's a father who loves a younger sibling, he can't give more to that younger sibling. You have to give it to the older son. This is the biblical law given by God. And yet we see repeatedly that God breaks God's own law. That's more than confusing. It's scandalous. And we see this dynamic right off the bat in the Bible, that God favors Abel's offering over Cain's. It's picked up again with Isaac being favored over Ishmael, now Jacob over Esau. It will continue with Joseph and his brothers, David and his, on and on it goes. God chooses the unexpected one. Not the oldest or the strongest, but the younger, weaker child. This is no small thing. The the law of primogeniture, in which the eldest is first and and favored, is not simply a custom from the ancient world. It was the foundation of their entire social and legal system. To, To mess with that power arrangement is downright scandalous. It's not an exaggeration to say that for God to choose the younger son was to upset the social fabric of the time. And so God tells the Israelites, make sure you honor the rights of the firstborn son. But on the other hand, God undermines this very law, time and again, choosing the unexpected one, the one without power, God chooses weakness. Now, how are we to make sense of this? Why does God choose Jacob and not Esau? Well, Jacob isn't chosen because he's better than Esau or worthier than him or that Esau is somehow inherently flawed. Jacob is flawed too. God doesn't choose people based on their worthiness. God chooses that which we would not. And unlike Kevin Arnold, God doesn't mind when everybody laughs at God's first pick. See, God does this to upend our understanding of power and worthiness. See, Esau fits our normal understanding of masculine power. He's tall and dark And if he's not handsome, at least he's hairy. He's an outdoorsman, a hunter, 
a daddy's boy. Jacob is quiet, stays indoors, likes to cook. He's a mama's boy. Now, none of this makes him better or worse than his brother, but it does put him in the weaker place, the less masculine, more feminine. And that's who God chooses. In reflecting upon this divine scandal, the Apostle Paul wrote some of the most profound words ever recorded, that God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to abolish things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. You see, when we possess that which the world considers powerful, we begin to think that we are the source of our own blessing in life, that we deserve what we have, in contrast to the undeserving, that we are self-created and self-made. But the grace of God undoes all such boasting. For God's power is revealed in weakness, in the despised, with those who are on the underside of respectability. Even people like Jacob who take advantage of their hungry brother in order to steal the birthright. Not a great look, Jacob. It's not how we do it. We'd never advise one of our children to treat their sibling in this way, in such a situation, would we? No, that's not how we would do it, but God does. And what we glimpse in the choice of Jacob is revealed most clearly in the cross of Christ where God's power is on full display through the broken body of a condemned criminal. None of us would ever choose that as a demonstration of divine power. But God does. Our origin story reveals that the grace of God is scandalous. And it reduces to rubble all of our fictions of being self-made and strong, of who is worthy and who is not. There is no room for such boasting in God's presence. For God is the source of our life. We are not self-made, none of us. We are God-made. We are because God freely chooses us to be. And God is not interested in propping up what our society deems as foundational, natural, or powerful. Grace undermines what we value and pops up in the least likely places, places like cancer and heartbreak, failure. In fact, that's where we should expect to find grace. We may not like the way God chooses. But know this. God has freely chosen you. Little old you. Not because of what you've accomplished, but simply because you are. And you will primarily experience the grace of God not through your successes, but through your failures.
the grace of God meets us in the low places. So are any of you feeling low, overlooked, weak? Well, chin up, for God has chosen you. Let's pray. Holy, holy, unexpected God, we were yours before we drew breath, and still we will be yours when the pulse of life ceases. In every fragile, reckless moment, we belong to you. We thank you for the desire of our parents who gave us life. May the love that we have received spill gratitude from our hearts. May the wounds that we carry open our hearts to the needs of others. And may we recognize in your mercy the faithfulness that judges and redeems every human bond. And so we lift to you all that now seems irreconcilable in our families, in our schools and workplaces, in our nation, in your church, and in your world. We lift to you those we love who are in need of your gracious presence. We pray for Betsy and for Bob, for Howard and Ellen, for a friend facing heart surgery, for a grandson who's working to get his grades up with summer school. For a goddaughter recovering from surgery, a friend having intense leg pain, and a friend recovering from hip replacement, for Frank who's recovering from an illness, For all those loved ones who we carry with us, whom we lay before you now, praying your gracious presence might surround them. They might know that they are loved and do not walk alone. We pray for those that we identify as leaders in every sphere of life. For our President Joseph. And for all whose Decisions weigh heavily on others. Even so, Lord, give us the courage to name ourselves as those whose responsibility is great. Teach us to act, to tend to the world that you love, to sow more than we reap, to heal more than we wound, to make room for others just as you have made room for us. 
Redeeming God, stake your claim upon us now until we hear your grace echo in each stranger's story and see your image reflected on every wounded face. For we pray in the name of Jesus who unsettles our lives for the sake of your love and who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 